0: Welcome to Wabash Center webinars. It is a good day for a provocative conversation. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, director of the Wabash Center and at the producer's desk is Carly Hollinsby and Paul Myrie is our sound engineer. Our topic for today is white rage. During the conversation questions can be sent to our panelists through Paul Myrie's email. That's m y h r e p at wabash.edu. M-Y-H-R-E-P at wabash.edu. This conversation is the fourth of a series of seven conversations with Melanie Harris and Jennifer Harvey. Reverend Dr. Melanie Harris is Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion of Adran College and the School of Interdisciplinary Studies, as well as Professor of Religion and Ethics with Texas Christian University. Dean Harris is a well-known facilitator of conversations to heal the wounds of racism. She has been part of the leadership of the Wabash Center for many, many years. Reverend Dr. Jennifer Harvey is professor of religion at Drake University, where she also serves as faculty director for the Crew Scholars Program. Dr. Harvey's books on racism include, Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in Racially Unjust America. It is a New York Times bestseller and dear white Christians for those still longing for racial reconciliation. Dr. Harvey is also a longtime participant and leader with the Wabash community. Dean Melanie Harris and Professor Jennifer Harvey as colleagues regularly offer anti-racism seminars, symposiums and workshops in institutions across the country and of course here at the Wabash Center. Thank you both to my colleagues for joining me in this leadership and in these conversations, thank you. Uh, For being here today. Thanks, Lynn. The uh, the title, White Rage, has gotten a whole lot of attention. So I'm glad we are here to have this conversation. Um, And I want to kind of frame the conversation with these three statements that, for me, all have the same meaning. Um, And one that the the violences of racism so permeate school ecologies that white rage is not noticed by anyone other than its victims. So that is a part of Beverly Tatum's analysis. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: A Second way to say the same thing, racism is systemic and systematic hatred that is so typical in the academy that the toxic environment of hatred is considered normative. Mm. And Mm. the third way to say the same thought, the violences of racism are so typical that white people consider those violences unremarkable and they overlook and those violences are overlooked, unseen, and disregarded. So, Melanie, I'm gonna start with you. Mm-hmm. There is oftentimes surprise that racism, the experience and the victimization of racism is a violence.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It is not a, a discomfort, it is not uh, it, it is a violence.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Help us understand why dehumanization of racism is violence?
1: Thanks for the question, Dr. Westfield. It is violence in part because it literally dismembers one. There is a sense in which the true definition of dehumanization means that you are completely always attempting to dismantle the humanity, the dignity, the beingness and the right of a person or being to be. This is hard to live through um, the attack of it constantly, uh, the barrage of microaggressions that can happen through the course of a week, uh, a class, and certainly a career. Mm -hmm. And it is important to recognize that the dehumanization is intentional that on some level, even if white people are not fully conscious of the white supremacy that is a part of their everyday lives and way of thinking, that there is an intentionality to do away with the person of color, that the blackness or the brownness or the differentness is so um, difficult to live with in part because it's not exactly the same as whiteness. And that is where I think there's a lot of potential in terms of space of recognition for white supremacy. Um, And it's also the space from which I think white rage emerges, This this disability to be able to accept blackness, brownness, difference as fully human um, I know in many different faculty settings that I've been in in different faculty meetings, this shows up in different ways. Some of it is cutting the person off, not listening to the person, silencing people of color, simply not attending to diversity, equity, and inclusion until there is a lawsuit, or until there has been a reprimand of some kind. Um, but this is a it's almost like a, a terrible seed that's been planted in the white psyche very, very early on and certainly can become a part of the normative identity of a religion department.
0: So Jennifer, help us with this notion of rage and violence. I mean, keep going with the conversation. How is it that people can be violated at the same table as other people are not experiencing that violence and that violence go unnoticed?
2: Well, one of the reasons that I think that can go on is that white folks ourselves are also dehumanized by the system. So we we have bartered away our humanity or had it early in our lives begun to be bartered away for us. And it's typically some combination of both in such deep formative ways that we, we, we ourselves are, are dehumanized by the system, which makes it, which is not me saying we're victims. So I just, to be really clear about that, but in that own alienation from our human, our own humanity, we are completely unable to, you know, we, we are, we are in some ways numb. We are kind of have experienced a kind of soul death. We've kind of, we're disconnected from our own embodiment. And if I'm disconnected from my own embodiment and I'm numb to my own dehumanization, how could I possibly recognize, identify with, affirm the humanity of someone else who also, um, then in the air between us and in the very structures in which we are being colleagues to one another, there's profound legacies of white supremacist su- supremacy and violence that insulates me at, you know, in, at sort of another remove from my own sort of the way I'm sort of got alienation within myself. And so I think there's multiple layers in terms of the how. Um, and they start with the way the system has already, you know, our participation in it as white Americans has has been on t- the terms of white supremacy's admission to all kinds of access that we've done that in exchange for our own humanity as well. And so how could I possibly you know, identify with Dr. Harris, right? If I've already I'm not even humanized, I have I've allowed myself to be humanized. So how can I how can I feel the humanity of another? Um, but again that's that's different than saying white folks are the sort of most harmed or tar- or, or victimized. And that's not what I'm claiming. But these systems cause violence to, to anyone who participates on them, regardless of to whatever degree we've consciously sort of made that barter.
0: What do you think about the notion that uh, racism is systemic and systematic hatred? That in, in the politics of inferiority, that the to be a victim, to be a victim of the violences of racism means that we are hated people and those who participate at it getting the goodies of the hatred system might not know about that hatred.
1: It's a very important reality. Uh, I don't think anyone would be excited about drinking hatred each day, like a cup of coffee, but that's exactly what we do. Um, And in some ways we do it delicately. Um, There are ways in which it's infused, the drinking a cup of coffee of hate is infused in the evaluation process of a pre-tenure faculty the drinking a cup of coffee of hatred is infused in the way that we debate and eat at each other's ideas and minds as scholars, uh, either face-to-face or virtually. Um, So I think that the the cup of hatred, it is a choice. And that's that's the, the part of mindfulness, that one needs to be able to be aware enough to recognize hate when one sees it and to see when one is actually drinking it and spewing it out, right? And actually using that and embodying that. I appreciate what you just shared, Dr. Harvey, in terms of the embodiment of white supremacy. I do believe that we live in a very bifurcated, obviously culture, and there are so many people who identify with white supremacy who embody white supremacy and who actually are kind of proud of the legacy of white supremacy either as it shows up on their cv their resume or in their work which doesn't have any people of color in it and they're quite proud of having a career that they've been actually able to extinguish or to ignore scholars of color and scholarship i think there is a way in which this is an indication that the person or the scholar is out of their own body and the woman's tongue is out of their own mind. That there is a line, there is no alignment between the head and heart. That there is something wrong with the body, actually, um, in part because one has not been able to be aware enough of what's what's happening and what they're doing.
0: Mm-hmm. And the result of not being that lack of awareness of being clothed and in, in my right mind, mm-hmm. right, as a woman is true Uh clearly in my right mind. That lack of awareness then does inflict this kind of hatred, does uh, not, are not aware of the violences. Um, So many people think erroneously that if the police are not torturing someone in public and kneeling on a neck, or loosing the dogs, or has the fire hose out on a group of nonviolent protesters, then I am not participating in racism. It's those violences, those blatant violences that are violent. And just my silence or complicity when I see a colleague being passed over for tenure is not violent. But what we're trying to at least suggest to people is that that is a violence, right? That that act of dehumanization matters. Jennifer, how, did, how does that sound? I think so. If, if, for people who are new to the conversation, I would think that that sounds fantastical.
2: So it might sound fantastical, and I think this is what I would want to say about that. And it goes back to what um, you said in your last question, Dr. Westfield, about how could people two people sit at a table, the same table, and someone doesn't know. I think that it could sound fantastical. We need to recognize it that as a, as a, as a choice that it sounds that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And this also goes back. We're sort of in this cul-de-sac of whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. White surprise, which we talked about last month, because it's a chosen unknowingness. So I can say in part, I can't engage, identify with, recognize the humanity of this person, right. Mm -hmm. Who I am. I share space with, Mm -hmm because i've been dehumanized myself but it's it's also a choice this is this is a primary difference perhaps between being in the sort of complicity with perpetration in contrast to the complicity with being perpetrated against which of course is often not a strict binary of you know in all kinds of ways including the various ways our identities are intersectional nonetheless it's a choice to stay in that unknowing state of dehumanization right mm-hmm. i can decide and especially at a point in, you know, it's 2020. I don't care how much I've been had to be in an ivory tower to get that degree, which is his own kind of capacity to sort of disconnect from the social context. It's 2020, right? And so even this summer, what we saw and people kind of going, oh, is this, th- I mean, the cell, phone footage, cell phone footage isn't even new, Right. <laughs> and so the reason this matters so much, one reason that it matters so much, is I want to be really explicit. Like, if I say, for example, one of the reasons, the, the violence of, the, the aggression of, just really concrete example, and we've talked about this before, a, a, a white professor, faculty member, not um, acknowledging, just let's talk about students, the name of a student, because they are afraid of mispronouncing it, or they can't recognize the student, Right. I know that that is an effect of the the ways that white supremacy has malformed white consciousness, deformed me, right? That is not an, an, an infrequent occurrence. It doesn't mean I'm a bad actor because that happens. It means I have been infiltrated by white supremacy, right? That is one of the symptoms. Very small, granular example, but it happens all the time. It is, a, it is a knowing, it's a, it's, a, it's a known choice though. We can predict that outcome of white supremacy in white lives. So I can recognize as a white person, this is one of the things that has happened to my consciousness, this disabling of my ability to see my students and all their beautiful diversity. And if I know that and acknowledge that I can choose to literally we rewire my brain to, to learn how to do that if we do not choose to rewire our brains then we are actively choosing even though it might look like oh this i just can't remember people's names we are actively choosing to to not um uh, uh, deactivate our own participation in that form of violence in 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 a very real concrete immediate way right Mm -hmm. so it's not my fault that whiteness has impacted my brain this way but at this point since I know that's one of the ways, and there's countless of them, correct? It is, it is my choice, agent-filled choice whether I am going to decide to relearn against and through that. And agency shows up there, and if I don't enact it, then I am actively being complicit in violence and harm. And that's just one of bazillions of examples, right? And Dr. Harris, you're naming the, the broader scale ones, right? Like in, in, engaging the scholarship of people of color. Um, making it central, right? Primary conversation partner, whatever, you know, that, you know, tenure, right? All these diff- different modes of life in the academy where these kinds of aggressions and violences show up in really career impacting, life impacting ways.
1: Yeah. I think uh, it's important too to look at some of the violences that can be um, invisible. Um, some of them occur. Um, In the small talk, you know, between a leader and a white faculty member. Um, Small talk meaning, well, how can I advance over everyone else? What suggestions? So there's almost like a mentoring conversation that can happen between white people. And it's almost as if there's a secret code um, of whiteness to be able to share and protect that privilege. And I have also witnessed and experienced white scholars intimidating, um, even harassing scholars of color to the point of trying to silence them um, if they are to say anything at all about unfairness, about racism around discrimination.
0: There's a gatekeeping that leaves people of color out of intimate conversations about how The nuances of these institutions work. There's a gatekeeping function that is not talkative, but silence, also leaving certain kinds of people out, people of color out. So um, Dean, tell us about, uh, bureaucracy to me is a bad word. I, I use bureaucracy trying to express a notion of there's something wrong with institutions. And I know everybody doesn't do that. So I'm gonna say from the jump, when I say bureaucracy, I'm trying to convey that there's a problem. There's a problem. Yes, in right. What about the bureaucracy that says, yes, we want to be anti-racist? But bureaucratically, we just don't have time. There's certain standards that need to be met, there's certain forms that need to be filled out, there's certain protocols to be maintained. We don't, we're already overworked as bureaucrats. So we don't have time to make the changes that would alleviate or at least relax some of the racism here. And nobody says it that succinctly, but that's how we experience it. Those of us who are victims of racism experience it. We don't have time to change for y'all. So just get with the program. Mm
1: -hmm. The program is a killing program. And Mm -hmm. I think that's um, important to recognize um, at least for the, the or individuals of the department or the faculty colleagues moving through the process. I think the bureaucracy is usually, a, it's a lie. Um, and the bureaucracy is usually an excuse to, for the institution to be able to stay in its most original frame of white supremacy. Um, oftentimes what can happen is one can think that as, as a person of color and a scholar of color, I certainly took on administrative posts and I'm serving in administrative posts right now, in part because We have a team of leaders who actually are knocking at the bureaucracy. We are being highly intentional. And I think many institutions are trying to do this work in the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion of literally interrupting the system and saying, why and how and stop? We do not have scholars of color who can communicate with students of color who have been having horrid experiences in classrooms with white professors. Mm -hmm. These students are having terrible experiences in their classrooms, learning from professors who will not call their names, who will not honestly look at their work, who will not actually grade them fairly. And and in many cases, students of color have no one to talk to. And so the bureaucrats uh, in some institutional spaces look at themselves and the tweets and social networks works and social conversation that's happening among students, and in a COVID era, recognizing the students won't go there.
0: Enrollment is the issue. It, and, or, enrollment is and Jennifer, come on into this part of the conversation. The And what if the biggest perpetrator is the seniorest, whitest, malest colleague, who have trained the people around him, I'm gonna say him, but it's not always a him, him or her. It's not always a him. Train them systematically to stay away from any of these foibles by all of their behavior of saying I'm in charge and you're not, and you can't tell me what to do because I'm senior so-and-so and and been here so-and-so number of years. So so then the institution is literally held hostage by these one or two people.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And by the silence and complicity and willingness of the non one or two who will go along, right? Which is where then many of us are. Mm-hmm. And that's where in you know, in some ways, this particular conversation, the the structures, the bureaucracy, the ways in which the infrastructure and and sort of handbooks and committees and policy like all of the stuff that makes an institution so able to like on the one hand enables it to carry forward. Um, really important things and, 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 you know, enable work to not have to sort of start over and, you know, but on the other hand, which then is the very vehicle of all of these, um, you know, evil, evil systems that just, you know, that, that sort of, you know, run people into the ground. um, You know, we can get into this conversation. I feel like, Oh my gosh, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. (laughs) You know, but, But (laughs) two things. One is that that's why for me, I constantly find myself landing at this like, and it's the, you know, it can be the one or two, but, and who, with the complicity and silence of the rest of us, allowing that to go on, right? Um, I'm not downplaying how powerful the one or two can be, but I am really clear that many of us have more capacity to unleash some power if we would sort of look up and look out and and acknowledge the our own ways of participating in dehumanization in ways that might not topple that person, but could certainly enable new kinds of, of, of realities to be unleashed in a space, especially if we're there for some time, right? So that's one piece. And the other piece, and this is, again, a, a part where I feel like, oh, what does this mean? I'm thinking right now about um, I was just listening again to some, some an interview that uh, Sonia Sonia Renee Taylor, who wrote the body is not apology, did and where she talked about, okay, if let's be really honest, if we know, for example, where the modern day police department came from, right? Mm-hmm. It came into existence mm-hmm. to patrol enslaved people, African people, African American people, right? Why on earth would we expect? that the structures that were conceptualized conceptualized that way could, would not continue to perpetuate those legacies just in a different form. Friends, higher education is the same thing, right? It was also the way this bureaucracy, as you name it, Dr. Westfield, it was built around a certain kind of white supremacist, colonial settler, male, wealthy, you know, way of... Valuing certain kinds of knowing and opening up certain kinds of access, right? And so there's kind of a clear-eyedness that we need to have about that. That's also not, then doesn't just succumb to like, well, this is how it is. So I'm just going to be here, but also needs to be really clear about that. That this is, I mean, Dr. Harris, that's what I hear when you say it's a killing machine. Cause yeah, this is where it came from, right? <laughs> right. There's a reason, actually, endowments, some of them are sitting there with monies from enslavers, right? That's what, you know, Brown, Princeton, like theological schools too. So clear eyedness about that, whatever we might then do with that as we journey in these spaces needs to inform the ways I think about who, who am I going to decide to be in this space? Who am I going to be, you know, human being to human being to and with, and how am I going to accomplish that if I'm acknowledging also the ways I've been implicated and shaped
0: So to our listeners, if you'd like to send a question in, you email Paul Myrie at myhrep at wabash.edu. That's myhrep at wabash.edu. I did a consultation at a school a couple years back um, who, and they wanted to talk about anti-racism strategies. Um, And they, in talking to them about changing the ideas that were taught in their classrooms, they very pridefully said, Well, we plan our curriculum seven years in advance. So the kinds of changes and courses that you're suggesting to us were in favor of, and we'll be able to do that in seven years. So the very structures wow. that give them stability, right, that help schools stay alive. Uh, Dr. Harvey, like you were talking about, that we that schools are known for planning, for structure, for order for policies and procedures that have kept us solid. Those are the same structures that make, as Dean Harris said, a killing machine. If you can't introduce new thoughts into your curriculum and new courses, but once every four years or once every three, that's too long a span of time in a digital age. Yes. Things Mm -hmm. happen faster than that, unless they don't. Right, so those that same bureaucracy keeps in place these racist thoughts, this racist formation, and helps hide the racist people who find spaces that to live in in these ways.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, wow. Yeah, really. And
1: one of the other sides of this um, is the um, the different mappings of hate, right? Mm-hmm. That it can in fact come from the white male. And as we mentioned, it can also come from the white female. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can come from the first woman who happens to be white. Right. So nice. There's some affirmative action that's, you know, served both white women and people of color. And somehow that white woman, because of mm-hmm. white privilege, oftentimes ends up in a position then to be the gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. Some of the harshest, most fierce white rage and violence has come through white women in the academy.
0: Amen and Ashe.
1: There needs to be some attention to that. And as you mentioned, Dr. Harvey, the kind of consciousness, uh, literally the healing and the reformation of the conscious, uh, conscience of that person and those individuals needs to take place. The other thing, though, that's important to recognize, and it's hard to say, um, but it is very true, that there are people of color, scholars of color, who have swallowed white supremacists cups of hatred. And many times these are cups of self-hatred. And so the way that one walks through one's career and one's faculty connections is constantly spewing out additional hate, either upon the students or upon the colleagues in the name of academic excellence, in the name of power. We often see this, unfortunately, also showing up in a patriarchy, right? Scholars of color who actually embed not only an internalized racism, but also a heightened patriarchal sexist way of being so that it becomes very, very important for them to not only fight, Against racism, at least to themselves, even while embodying white supremacy, but also to shut down walls and barriers, particularly for women of color. And this can happen.
0: That's why in anti racist conversations, it it is very difficult when white people say, Well, I consulted the one person of color and they said we're doing fine. Yep. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But can't do you not have the eyes to see that that one person has has contorted themselves so much to fit in and assimilate that they're barely shells of themselves? You can't ask mm. them about love and community and belonging, right? Lost themselves in whatever this is.
2: Mm-hmm. Can, yeah. can, can I add to? Please, in my experience of that as well is that, um, and for folks listening, is is also in that consultation of that one person. um, And even if they have not contorted themselves, many times it's a very common strategy for institutions to allow one person in, right? One person. And so there's also this way in which, um, you know, wherever that person might be on a continuum or not of having imbibed the, the, the culture of the institution, that person can so easily become the token by which the institution, or even me as a, again as a constituent member of that institution, finds a way to give myself a pass because so and so said I'm fine, and you know, but not in the room as an acknowledgement that well we're only going to allow one of those folks here, right? <laughs> because then we both simultaneously don't have to you know sort of um, engage the challenge that that real um, meaningful, you know, robust, pluralist diversification of a faculty or a staff or both of a student body would create while also being able to say, but, 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 but we have a pat, but, but we have done that. Right. Because, and that person, but, you know, so tokenizing is an incredibly powerful weapon. And the other thing that I sort of feels like it's in the room too, is that I also think white rage, um, underneath all of this can be too, in this sort of movement that we're seeing, social movements where, you know, the visibility of Black Lives Matter, the powerful witness that um, Latino communities have engaged in around issues of immigration and the dehumanization of of immigrants, um, you know, with an acuteness over the last four years, not new, but a a particular kind of acuteness to it, um, that, you know, their institutions are going, are being pressed to do more Around diversity and equity and inclusion, and oh, oh boy, is that when white rage really can start to show up, right? Because then it's like, especially if we start to do it, the institutions, and then we hear, well, actually, that's not enough. It's not meaningful enough. Then, like, wait a second. First, you know, you said one person wasn't now enough. Now you're saying ten percent's not enough. What are you talking? You know, when 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 will you be happy? You know Mm -hmm. that that's just right under the surface in this social political moment, I can feel it, you know? Um, so there's all kinds of ways that people of color at an institution become, become the, the way white, white supremacy gets a pass.
0: Well, uh, gets, gets a pass and even digs its roots in and its teeth in yep. deeper, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So with, with Thank you. a slight change comes the backlash, mm-hmm. right? And the slight change brings the backlash. It also sounds like the two of you are talking about the need for sophisticated analysis in any particular context. Now, the call for sophisticated analysis would seem far-fetched or very difficult, except the people we talk to have PhDs <laughs> and are researchers and are trained to do sophisticated analysis and problem solving. So when I do go to schools and talk to colleagues and they scratch their heads as if, "Why won't a simple solution, and how could this be complex?" and I just don't know, yeah, hey, I don't know how to do this complexity," and I'm talking to somebody with a PhD, I just want to call them lazy. Now maybe that's not fair. <laughs> but there's, there's a sense that if you cannot do this complexity of analysis, then, then why can't you? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that the, the invitation oftentimes for them to be able to do it when it comes to race and when it comes to recognizing and dismantling uh, dehumanization, that's where the training has been absent. Um, and many of us as academics are unwilling to admit that, that we actually don't know what we're doing in order to try to create a space of inclusion in most of our departments and most of our institutions. We simply don't because that's not how many of us were trained. Many of us were trained in the white supremacist mode of thinking about religion and theology in particular disciplinary uh, sections. Um, Some of us are highly, highly specialized in our understanding of the Bible, for example, but we have no idea what to do when a racial conflict actually happens in our classroom. Mm -hmm. But instead of admitting that, we hide it. Hmm.
2: Yes, yes. I, I feel like there's this tendency in these kinds of uh, dialogues and where, spaces where work is, is invited to happen, things that where, where in which, and I, I feel like I hear this a lot because of the spaces that I often find myself in is that people really want like, give me the to-do list. Give me the 10 things. I can do to fix this. And on the one hand, I have deep appreciation for that in the sense that I I do hear folks saying we want to be concrete, like help us take these really big, you know, crises and inherited legacies and get concrete about what we do next. And so I have have some real empathy for that because I want us and I want us to be concrete. I believe in praxis. But what that sort of asking for a to-do list does is it forgets and it sort of expects, it sort of fails to notice that, guess what? This stuff, look, it's everywhere. Clearly, we haven't figured out yet all the to-do, like you are part of helping write the to-do list, right? Yeah. Actually, there is no to-do list, but you are you are part of helping identify the concrete. And now you don't have to do it by yourself because actually people of color, both within and outside the academy, have been saying for a very long time what this could look like, right? Mm-hmm. What the needs are, where the harms are happening in very concrete ways. But there's no external, like, sort of solution. No one's going to pass me a football, I catch it and, we're, and run to the end zone, right? It, it's not there. We have to be about the work together of creating the concrete. And I think that's where, in some ways, we're stuck individually and collectively in institutions is that we're looking for someone to, to hand us the list. And this is just deeper and more complex than that, which is why that incredible critical capacity for analysis that you're talking about, Dr. Westfield. Like this is a choice to prioritize what we use our intellectual capital for. Mm -hmm. And if we don't choose to prioritize the intellectual capital that we do have around this because we're hoping someone else will give us the list that actually doesn't exist, then we may as well say we're not even really interested in trying.
0: Well, but we if can choose to prioritize our analytical abilities. Sorry. If somebody hands you a list, they have done you a disservice. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so even if a list works at Drake University, it is not going to work right at Wabash College. Right. Mm-hmm. So they have done you a disservice. They have sold you, you know, they have sold you a bridge <laughs> you know, somewhere. And maybe one of the first concrete steps is to say how in any particular context do you get together with your colleagues to make your list? Mm-hmm. That is germane to that context, mm-hmm. right? Rather than the list from coming outside of you, where you would have to reinterpret it, read, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to adapt it and, and, and make and correct it. Why not start? How do we make a list in our own context based on not the people we wish were here, should be here, ought to be here or left? based on the people and the strategies in that particular spot with those folks and those personalities and all those broken cookies that are sitting up in there called colleagues, right? You're in there with actual people Mm -hmm, who have strengths and weaknesses and in their humanness are going to mess up every time. We know about diversity work is that it will be difficult and it'll take a long time. If you don't start, It'll still be difficult. It'll still be <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: no easier tomorrow. Amen. Amen. Right. You know, and an, another piece of the another language for the list is a diversity strategic plan, mm-hmm. right? And I think that what we're saying here, which is so wise, is that you can't take a strategic plan, a diversity strategic plan from online and another institution, and just make it fit your institution, there's a a huge invitation here for scholars together, faculties, to look first at where the harm is. Who are the scholars of color? Were there any programs in place that actually would have made their pathway easier? Where are the lawsuits around racial discrimination? What did they say? Have you read them? Um, Those are some of the steps, starting with the space of harm. Also, starting with, you know, and this goes back to what you said, Dr. Westfield, looking at the analysis, where is it that we have more students of color kind of uh, at the, in the bottleneck, right? What's actually hindering them from actually graduating? What, is it a class? Is it a professor? Are all students having the same experience with the same professor? Is it the curriculum and the way that the curriculum is shaped? That's when you know, that's where the the pointers go in terms of developing the list or a strategic plan, a diversity strategic plan, and you want to do so in a really, you know, kind of, it's a simplistic kind of model, but you do want to look at the individual and the collective. You want to look at the institutional level, you want to look at the college level, you want to look at the department level, and then you also want to look at kind of one-on-one relationships and interpersonal relationships within the faculty if you are in an institution, and this is for our listeners, where there has been a repeated use of the token model, then you need to recognize that the harm that has probably happened because of of the adoption of, that per- adoption of that particular model. The token model of diversity does not work. We all know that. So if that's still happening, or even post-COVID, right, two or three years from now, budgets begin to free up and there's an opportunity to bring someone on that's a person of color, but you could only have enough budget for one, then one actually needs to take a moment and recognize, okay, are we using the token model or are we trying to actually build an anti-racist community here of faculty? Because that's a different approach and there is a deep and also invitation to actually take a look at what's the approach that will work for us that is anti-racist in its foundation. So those are just some of the kind of basic building blocks to a diversity strategic plan but I echo what we've said here you actually can't just go online and get a degree in diversity strategic plan and you know lift it to your and make it fit Um, that you actually have to do the work
0: you that's actually a, that's a formula for failure right yeah. so you you've just made difficult work you know forecasted to fail and then you have reasons why we we tried this a couple years ago we tried that six we tried it and it didn't work and so now we're not going to try it again well yeah. why did you get somebody else's strip plan uh dr myra be coming at you you got any questions
3: Yeah, I have several. Uh, I'm going to pick this one for now because I think it aligns with what you've been talking about most recently. Uh, White rage, white supremacy, white privilege have ways of warping, corrupting, and colonizing imaginations about what is possible. Mm -hmm. How has this reality impacted your imaginations, your students' imaginations, your colleagues' imaginations, your department's imaginations, and your institutional imagination? And what's it gonna take to liberate them?
0: Fascinating question. That's a great question. So, I mean, I'll go first, that'll give you all time to think. Um, I think one of the things that it has done uh, with the faculties that I've been involved in, both as a consultant, um, as well as a member of those faculties is that, White supremacy has said that imagination is not a part of scholarship, that only empirical data, only a certain kind of logic, I think therefore I am, right, worldview. It, it is what is essential, is what needs to be universalized, is what we call. When I hear those kinds of tropes, I, I experience them as a lack of imagination. So, I think it's a fascinating question to say what would it mean to put imagination and creativity back into the centrality of what the life of a scholar is, the life of a teacher is, and not keep it marginalized or people know they're creative, but don't tell my colleagues kind of atmospheres. Or another way of saying the same things you can't re envision, reimagine all those re words we. Can't using, we conceive institutions and teaching without the ability to imagine and vision something new, something else. That in and of itself is not a word that is stale, but it's an activity about improvisation. Right? So if we don't have this, we do have the innate skills of improvisation. If we don't unleash those, then we can't see new things.
1: Well, and I think seeing seeing new is the gift of imagination. Um, there is a wonderful illustration, actually, um, of the glasses, the rose-colored glasses that, that you use, Dr. Harvey, and a lot of our work together, recognizing that there is a particular lens that we see through as we're looking at race, as we're looking at intersectionality, as we're looking at the work of anti-racism. And it's important to actually take that lens off to recognize what needs to change about the prescription, et cetera, et cetera. I think in this particular case, um, as you said so powerfully, Dr. Westfield, most of us as scholars have actually been um, given glasses to leave all creativity out, especially in the work of religion and spirituality and theology in part because of the larger conversation in our discourse about it not being serious enough, not being uh, rigorous enough, not being logical enough, right? That that there's this space for transcendence and there's this space for God and there's this space for the mystery and there's a space for all of the kind of indigeneity that we actually don't know how to name or have named inappropriately using white supremacist legacy, et cetera, et cetera. When there's that much unknowingness in our particular discourse, there has been just this innate way of identifying oneself as a religious scholar that silences and that puts apart all creativity. So I was in a conversation early on in my career with a senior scholar um, in my field. And he said, don't tell anybody, but I write poetry for my wife. I was like, that's a great thing, that's wonderful. But even this, it was like a confession, right? That this kind of poetic space lives in the heart of a real scholar. I also remember a wonderful scholar of color who I deeply, deeply admired, um, who wanted to write a novel. And that was considered not strong enough, not academic enough, that that shouldn't even be in the purview. Um, even though we have these extraordinary writers, right? I mean, we come from a people, James Baldwin, Tony Morrison, we come from a people, particularly in Black religion, where our own work of putting fragments together in the way that Tony Morrison talks about it, in order to understand who we are. And that a lot of times these fragments, actually, you have to kind of put in what you think happened, what you're hearing happened from the ancestors, from other, you know, study of history, et cetera, that you actually have to, in some cases, fill in the gap. So, I, this question about reimagining is an important one. I'm going to take it to a different space, too, of recognizing that in the work of anti racism, as a scholar of color, one of the deepest challenges that I have had is recognizing that there are actually white allies out there. And now I have to. Reimagine what it would be like to be a scholar of color in a nonviolent academic setting. Like, I've never experienced that ever. And I, and I think a lot of scholars of color are like, wait a minute. Uh, there are white allies being trained in my institution, in my context. Wait a minute, the, the white dean and the white male provost want to have a conversation with me about, and that is another part of the conversation, I think, among scholars of color and people of color, is the world is changing in some ways, that there is hope, but some of us are so ingrained in our defensive mode mm-hmm. of of in some cases to use a very um, non-appropriate word, we're so used to having to play the race card Mm -hmm. and not just play it, but some of us have actually had to use it in order to survive. Mm -hmm. We are so used to tropes of survival that we actually, we resist the invitation to thrive. So That's important to put out there as well. And at the same time, if you know among our listeners that you're a part of a white reality, that you yourself are white, that you've witnessed white rage, that you are in in a context that is not yet on board with anti-racism, this understanding that I've just shared of sometimes where people of color go and where our thought process is, is not an excuse for you to not do the work. It's important to right. do the work of interrogating white privilege. It's important to recognize that the faculty that you're part of probably is not as inclusive as it needs to be, that it's not an invitation for you to now have this um new knowledge and insight uh, from one scholar of color about what's happening on our side to then not do the work on, on the on the on your side.
0: Yeah. That's very helpful. That's very helpful. Dr. So,
2: Beware white confessions. I'm always ambivalent about white people confessing things, but I'm gonna, um, because the question asks, whether you, you know? And so, and I've shared this story elsewhere, but I think it's really important um, too, for me. I have, I, for when I first came to Drake, um, I, for the longest time, I, I opted out. I would sit back and say things and I'd say it in public spaces too. Like at my institution, they don't hire people of color. <laughs> they don't retain people of color, scholars of color. And there was, I, I remember, I don't know what prompted it, but I remember the moment where I had been there for a few years and all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, I'm on the faculty. We do the hiring. Now, it doesn't matter that I hadn't been on a particular search, but to that point, nonetheless, I remember the moment I was suddenly was like, who do I think that they is? If this is the legacy of the institution and I work here, this is my legacy. That was really Humbling and it kind of scared me, and it got me activated in a particular kind of way. And the other time, I I remember the program I now direct, which has just been like a deeply transformative, um, institutionally transformative model um, around like our racial disparities and graduation GPA that are gone among the students in this program that I'm currently now directing and have been for a number of years, but I did not start. The persons who did start it brought me a draft of the plan about a year before it came into place and they wanted me to read it. This was years ago. And I read it. And I said, This is amazing. This is so powerful, it could be so transformative. I'm in awe. And I said, you'll never get this through. Not in an opt-out, I'm not gonna help, but I was but that was my first out loud assessment after telling them how gorgeous it was. I was wrong, thankfully, but I still I remember and I hold on to and re- retell that story because that's a an example of my imagination having been I didn't think it was possible and chose to sort of bring that into existence, right? As opposed to like, "Oh my gosh, thank you for for offering this vision of how things could be. How can I be can, how can I take part?" right? And you know, we have a long ways to go, but there are some there are movements of Drake is, there are things happening at Drake that I, that I haven't seen at other institutions. One of the ways now though, I think like I'm starting to, I love this question about how is, how is your own imagination sort of colonized? Because I'm thinking, you know, how are the ways now that as we've built one sort of model that's enabled thriving of a sort, that that now the institution is using that in other ways, right? That can then impede transformation in, in other sectors of the institution. I know that's happening. I'm aware that's happening. I can sort of see glimmers of it. And, you know, and so it's like this, it's a ever evolving sort of need to really ask that question of like, what what does flourishing actually look like? And what are the ways that the conditions in which we are in in which I'm, you know, complicit gets in the way of even imagining we could flourish. Um, so I think that constant interrogation of that very question is, is just deeply important. I appreciate that question a lot.
0: I think many people have said that um, I'm going to put all three of us in the same generation, uh, and a wide band of understanding what a generation is. Um, that once our generation kind of uh, goes on over, the next generations won't have the ha- the racist hangups that we have. I don't know mm-hmm. if I agree with that or not, right? There's I've heard many times we say, well, they don't, you know they don't get into this prejudice and this bias, and and I'm like, but they were formed by the same racist institutions. So I do, I do think younger generations that came up in, as digital natives have a different understanding of what imagination and creativity is and the kind of agency and power that they have in that. So part, Jennifer, but I'm, part of your example was the they, right? That somehow we are part of, part of the racist bureaucratic strategy is you are not included in the power. Right. I do hope that the next generations say with a, that in a kind of cavalierness, we have power, right? We, yeah. we have an understanding that individuals are powerful, right? And part of that is shifted just for social media's sake, right? You right, know, right. That, that you don't have to stay in the majority lane to be an influencer, right? Those things pop up in ways that are unexpected. So I think there might be a difference. sense of power. I'm not sure, and would like to hear from birth, both of you, if we think generationally, Notions of white supremacy and racism have shifted by generations?
1: No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I'm thinking, you know, of many millennial womenists that I know, for example, um, many of the young scholars and activists that I know who are working in the Black Lives Matters movement, many of the ones that I work with know very clearly the history of white supremacy um, and they actually are involved as activists and as scholars and as thinkers in the work because of their own commitment and I, what i mean by understanding is they know the history meaning they know american history which means they have studied like african-american history and united states american history um, in terms of settler, settler and colonialist kind of patterns. They've studied critical race theory. Um, so in what I, yeah, so it's important to recognize, I think that they understand that racism is here and how white supremacy actually has to just be dismantled and that it may take their generation and another generation Um, In part because of what we're talking about here, which is this lack of awareness and unwillingness for white people to actually look themselves honestly in their own souls um, deeply and recognize the malformation that has happened and actually to shed their power, to shed it and to share it. Um, And that outside of any kind of, you know, um, I don't know that that can be done in a religious oriented uh, space only, uh, our you know, work of the field of religion and theology doesn't always create the space for transformation. Mm-hmm. And so of, oftentimes we as scholars in religion and theology have to recognize that we're talking about an interdisciplinary move and not just an interdisciplinary, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about really taking some risks to go into some worlds that we don't know
0: much about, but we do have PhDs. These siloed guilds, fields and disciplines, help support. Alienation, isolation, and the white supremacist project and removing those walls between all those false, false, false abilities to label us in those ways could benefit us a great deal in our own creativity, in our own ability to imagine uh, the academy as being much more beneficial as an entity to the larger society. Yeah. Um, yeah. Paul, is there one more question?
3: Here's one that I've heard a number of times in Wabash Center workshops. Mm -hmm. And it's basically two questions. What would you, uh, let me put it this way, would you reflect on how a scholar of color can remain in the academic game without feeling like they've sold out to white supremacist academic culture? Mm -hmm. That is, how do we demonstrate enough that we belong in the game while not selling ourselves? It's all to address the system that we're both in and critique.
1: Mm, it's a really powerful question. So I would invite an invitation here to reframe the question in some way, conceptually. One has to come knowing that you belong and that you don't have to demonstrate it, Um Sure, you have to write and do your scholarship and you have to, but that should be framed by the life of the mind, by the thinkers and the mentors who have hopefully poured into you and the passion that you have to do your work, to answer your questions. Um, That needs to be your fuel. The validation has to come from you as a scholar of color. The validation will not come from the white supremacist colleagues or the white supremacist institution. And to expect that um, means a path of of disappointment and and potentially, you know, depression. Um, So the validation has to come from you. The passion has to come from you. The understanding of why you do the work. One could say one's calling. That has to come from within you, within your own inner wisdom and, and to be at peace, to find that inner peace. It is important to recognize that once you have the opportunity to work in excellence, keep working in excellence. That means, yes, offering critique, not just to the academy, but also to colleagues who are doing the work. If there is work, and if you're in conversations with religious scholars who work in an area of dehumanization consistently, and you consistently find systemic racism webbed into their scholarship and the way that they do scholarship, then yes, you need to critique that. And that too is a calling we're all called to be our true selves and that you have to do.
0: Dr. Harvey, did you want a piece of
2: that question? Well, I don't want to speak to the question directly in that way, but what I want to note for listeners who are white is to really hear that question and the longing and the, and the, you know, the naming of what scholars of color face in that question. And I want to invite us to, think about imagine ourselves as having a kind of situatedness where we part of our call is to help run our inter- interference so the the our colleagues don't have to live with the hard edges of that question in quite that way that doesn't mean we can fix it save it whatever but we can run some interference and create access by even the way we stand on you know in all those bureaucracies right and um, how we use our own um, institutional capital to try and just literally run interference so those questions are you know can be asked with less frequency or or with less of a kind of the sort of haunting cost that I hear echoed in that question so I just really want those of us who are white to just hear the kinds of questions our colleagues often need to ask right Thank you thank
0: you the next Harvey and Harris webinar is January 13th with the topic of, anti-racism as the work of the people. The Wabash Center website will have a video as well as an audio recording of this webinar. And we encourage our listeners and viewers to consider uh, this webinar as well as all the webinars um, and showing them to your faculty colleagues and showing them to your students and using them again and again as a resource in your own uh, teaching. Many thanks to my teammates, Carly and Paul, who make our digital resources possible. And we are out.